Bitcoin with Jake. This is a podcast all about Bitcoin. What is it? Why is it important? And who is involved? You can expect rich conversations focused on people's personal journeys through the good and the bad. You'll learn how intrinsic to society money really is, with Bitcoiners from all across the ecosystem detailing their unique lens on this nascent technology. Discussions cover a myriad of different topics, economics, education, entrepreneurship, history, human rights, mental health, philosophy, politics, science, sustainability, and technology. If you're anything like me, then you'll find this the most engaging subject you've ever encountered, so I'm sure you will enjoy it. Lastly, if you like the show, please share it far and wide. Family, friends, everyone you know can benefit from understanding more about Bitcoin. Now, let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome back to Bitcoin with Jake. I'm speaking with the heavily armed clown. Welcome, Hack. How are you? Hey, Jake. Thanks. Good. Glad to be great. here. No, great to have you on. And um, you came recommended by Mr. Richard, Richard James, or I say recommended, introduced by Richard James. So shout out to Richard. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, so very keen to hear about your, your story to Bitcoin. And um, people within the space will know you for a number of projects you're involved in, uh, which I'll also look to find out about. But before we reach the present day, I'm going to try a little differently this episode to just start at the beginning, basically. So what I'm interested in is um, your journey to Bitcoin, what might have happened in your life um, leading up to finding out about it that you feel is of significant importance. And what I love is the the huge variety and uniqueness of almost every Bitcoiner's or every Bitcoiner's journey to this new technology. Um, so yeah, just to kick us off, like, you know, how did things, um, uh, start for you basically? So you, you were studying or you grew up somewhere, um, just, you know, kick us off and, and let us know a bit about yeah. yourself. Um, well, I guess, well, real quick, Richard James, I'm honored, uh, that, that he's, I'm the type of person that he thinks of when he thinks of, uh, somebody you should talk to. So, uh, that's, <laughs> that's cool to hear. Uh, he's a, he's a great guy. His films are awesome. But, uh, Without going back too far, I think I would probably trace my beginning interests in Bitcoin. Okay, so I, I, I first heard about Bitcoin on Reddit in 2011 because I used to be a really avid Redditor when I was in college, which was like early 2010s. And uh, that was back when Reddit was cool. And then, well, it's cool to me anyway. It, it's not so cool now. It was, it, was, it was nerdy then, but that's what I mean by cool. And uh, <laughs> I had heard about Bitcoin like on Reddit just because people would talk about it in the, in the science and technology subreddits or whatever. But uh, I, I wasn't really interested in it because I was just focused on other things at the time. So it wasn't until 2017 uh, when I found myself, I was in the Navy at the time and I was deployed overseas. I was living in the Middle East. And I was basically teaching myself how to day trade because when I would get off work uh, on the bit of time that I would occasionally have off, um, about the time I would get home was about the time that the U.S. markets would open. So I was at a point in life where I was starting to have like some disposable income and things like that. So um, I started getting into trading penny stocks. Well, trading equities first and like buying options and stuff like that. And, and then just like trading penny stocks um, I, I guess I fancied myself like a like an amateur investor or an amateur trader or whatever, um, and I, I had no idea what I was doing. But like I was somewhat, it, it taught me a lot, like about the basics of finance and the basics of economics and those types of things. And uh, 
I came across a book. So this was right shortly after the Donald Trump election when he, when he took office. And at the time, like I was getting really interested in um, political science because the Donald Trump Hillary Clinton election was like, so uh, like you, you couldn't avoid it. Like even myself living outside the United States, like I could not avoid it. It was just everywhere all the time. And uh, I didn't know a whole lot about very much at that point in my life. Like, I, so I was like, I had a lot of questions that I couldn't answer. Like, what is an economic policy and why does it matter? You know, like what is finance? How does a company work? How do you make money? Why do stocks go up? I had a lot of questions, right? There's lots of questions like political, what a political science, what is it? What makes a conservative different from a Democrat? Um, I don't know. I didn't know. So I started reading a lot of books, a lot of nonfiction books in particular. And, um, to sate my curiosity. And I read a book. Uh, I, I bought like two books of Donald Trump's off of Amazon. Uh, and then Amazon, for whatever reason, recommended to me a book by Ron Paul called And the Fed. So I was like, okay, Ron Paul seems like a smart guy. I knew some people in college that liked Ron Paul and they seemed like smart people. So I'm going to buy that book too. Just like random, random chance. And I just so happened to have that book with me one time when I was out at sea and I ended up reading it and I was like, wow, that was really, really good. That was really interesting. And I posted about it on my Facebook and a mutual acquaintance of mine said, oh yeah, that's great. Like you, you took the first step. Cool. Now go read from the creature from Jekyll Island. And I was like, oh, okay. So I ordered that. And that was like, holy crap, this book is like a tome. Uh, so I read that and I was like, oh, now it's all starting to make sense. There's a lot going on here, like a lot of complex history, monetary economics, and, and uh, a lot more goes into finance than just like how, what's the market cap of a company and what does the chart look like? Um, and, and then I really just kind of started to go down the rabbit hole from there. Um, and, and around that time, Bitcoin was kind of had, had just gone through its most recent, uh, it's having, uh, in 2016, I believe. So the price was kind of on an upper trajectory and, uh, it kind of just aligned itself perfectly with me falling into Austrian economics because Bitcoin had been in the back of my mind. I was like, wow, people are making a lot of money in Bitcoin. I should really look into that thing, you know, while I'm sitting there reading like Hayek and, and Rothbard and stuff like that. And, and then it just kind of clicked one day. Uh, it, it took a little while for me to go from, cause like at first it was just crypto for me. It was like, oh yeah, crypto, that makes sense. Um, and then I had to really kind of become more multidisciplinary and learn a lot more about like the technology and networks and network history uh, and, and cryptography and those types of things to really sort of grok and open source software to really sort of grok why Bitcoin and not just crypto. And that was kind of a roundabout path, but that's like the long and short of how I got into Bitcoin was like, it, it really kind of, the lightning bolt hit me in like 2017 and I haven't put it down since. It's, it's an incredible story. That's why. I mean, not just is it intellectually engaging throughout, you know, you, you, you brush one level, you, you read a bit about it, and you're like, okay, that's kind of cool. What's, what's next? And you, you start picking up different bits of knowledge from different areas and it all seems to start making sense but then at the same time there's way more questions and I love that phrase I had a lot of questions like being curious is one of the most fundamental parts of being human and it's just so wonderful to see people being like that do you know what I mean like well, why and too often you know if you listen to your tv there's no one saying ask questions it's basically this is the way of the world and we've got mm -hmm. you don't worry trust us type thing and it's like well hang on but why <laughs> and sadly mm -hmm. enough people out there don't yet ask enough questions in my opinion 
Um, but before we get kind of too topical on that phrase, um, you mentioned a couple of things I'd like to pick up on. So first of all, that you were at college. Um, what were you studying at college? And then equally, what took you into the Navy? Um, and, and was being in the military something you were always interested in? Uh, yeah, I think it was. I mean, I was very much like I grew up hunting and fishing and like living outside and uh, like building forts in the woods and like um, drawing maps and just like all the things that boys dream about doing all day long. So um, for me, it was kind of like I, I was really interested in. So so when I, I studied, I, I was pre-med when I was a freshman and then I was like, well, this sucks. I don't want to do this because you basically have to commit to a bunch of slave labor uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, educational system. What did you like describe it as? Pre-med. Get into pre-med, pre-medical school, ah, like okay, a pre-medical okay, school pipeline yeah. to become a doctor. So uh, I made the decision after being a freshman, I was like, well, this sucks. I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to work in a clinical environment. I don't enjoy that at all. Um, I think I'm probably just going to end up joining the military. So I switched majors to something that was kind of complimentary where like I wouldn't lose all of the progress I had made my first year as a freshman. So I switched to exercise physiology, which was basically like, well, I love working out. I love being fit. I could see like interning as a strength and conditioning coach or something like that for my senior project or whatever. I'll just do that. And then I'm going to try to get, I'm going to try to learn everything I can about health and fitness and sports performance. And I'm going to try to do something like really crazy. Cause I've always been in pretty good shape. Like I did combat sports all my life and stuff like that. So I was like, I'm going to go try to become a Navy SEAL. Cause that seems like it'll be like one of the hardest things to do. So I'm going to go do that. Um, I want to just go work around really, like really interesting, really highly motivated, incredible people. I was like, so that's what I'm going to do. I decided that, um, due to the influence of my best friend, uh, at the time, uh, who also had the same goal. We, we kind of just aligned ourselves on that interest. So, uh, that's what I, that's what I focused on for like four or five years of my life was going to try to become a Navy SEAL. And how old were you roughly when that was, um, that was going on? Like when I made that decision? Yeah. So those four or five years was what, 18 to 23 or something like that. Yeah, probably. I was probably like 19 or 20 when I first yeah, made okay. the decision and I joined the, I enlisted in the Navy when I was 23, I believe. Okay. With a bachelor's degree, which is a terrible decision. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, why? I mean, why is it a terrible decision with a bachelor's degree to enter the Navy? Well, so because you're, you know, you, I, I, I qualified for any job in the Navy, like at the mm -hmm. enlisted level, because I was just basically overqualified for everything. Um, like I maxed out their aptitude score or their aptitude test. Like I was like, I could have just done anything. And I was like, okay, you have two options. You can either enlist and get picked up. They, they have to try to become a Navy SEAL. It's kind of like entering like the NFL uh, combine where you kind of get screened. You go into a draft and then they like pick you. They do like rounds of picks where they pick like all the top applicants. And um, it just basically turned out where the chances of me getting selected were astronomically better if I just enlisted rather than if I tried to become an officer and then go that direction, uh, there's just a lot less like availability in that direction. It's a lot more competitive. So it was like kind of just a roll the dice situation where I was like, okay, I know if this doesn't work out, it's going to really suck and it's going to really screw me, which is what ended up happening. But uh, yeah. And so um, did you become a Navy SEAL? I did not. And what was the reason for not going down that rabbit hole? Just the, the simple probability calculation you did in your head of like, the no, I, I went, I went to the, oh, training. you tried. 
Oh, yeah. well, t- I actually t- tell went us about to the that. training. So, place. what was what was that like? And and uh, talk to me specifically from the lens of like what kind of characteristics are um, most common among those that are trying to get into this this line of work? Essentially, like why are people there? What drives them? What gets them through it? That's an interesting question. Uh, I would say very much like type A personalities. Uh, a lot of people that came from where. The, so everybody that I met with the, with a very few exceptions like that, that was pursuing that, um, that goal, like they were very much the best at everything that they ever did in life. Like these are people who struggled to find challenge in just about everything that they did in life. Mm-hmm. Um, they always excelled in, in everything, like just their attitudes were just very confident, like very confident in themselves and everything that they did. Um, generally like pretty humble, like down to earth types of people, like very intelligent. Like I, the majority, I think the majority of uh, enlisted Navy SEALs actually have college degrees, which is very unusual in the military. Um, for whatever reason, that community attracts, it has a lot of prestige. So it attracts a very particular type of people who are usually very successful in just about every aspect of life. So like there were, when I went through the, the program, there were guys like to my left and my right that were like Olympic level athletes that had like achieved medals in the Olympics guys who had either, um, competed like at the top level of collegiate athletics or turned down pro contracts to go and pursue this instead. Um, guys who had left other prestigious positions and other branches of service and tried to like basically started over at the bottom in the Navy to try to get into this program. It was like all across the game. And then like just your normal everyday, like farm boys from Kansas or whatever, who had just worked hard their whole life and wanted to try something new. Um, Really like a, like a whole across the gambit. It, it, uh, we could probably do an entire podcast just on talking about what the experience was like, but it was, it was hard. It was very, very, very hard. It is not a joke. Um, my opinions like after the fact are kind of that the U S government uses programs like that as recruiting tools, not so much because they need a bunch of Navy SEALs, but because they need a bunch of um, qualified candidates to do other stuff. And they intentionally kind of over promise and over recruit for this program to just take what they have left over and, and yeah. push those people into other spots. Uh, but again, you know, that's, we could talk about that for a long time. I have a almost lot of like a kind of, that. no, it makes sense though, right? You've got this, this standout and prestigious position. You put out a, uh, a job advert for it and you hoover up all of these excellent applicants and you re you reassign them into different areas. Like it makes right. sense. Yeah. Right? You're just leveraging and, and, that brand basically to, to, to get what you need, which is, you know, highly talented and specifically, ethically aligned like well that's probably the wrong word right in um, theory anyway yeah and do you know it, what, and they, they the, share the, the same trick, thoughts right the big trick is to like get them to con- commit up front in a way that they can't break that commitment it'd be like me agreeing or you, you, me telling you like if i sold used cars and i told you uh you can come shop on my lot but you have to sign this contract that you will buy a car from me no matter what like when you, when I take you to the lot and it like, obviously that's a terrible agreement and that would not be in your favor. <laughs> but if as long as I, I told you, I have a Lamborghini for $1. And as long as you get there and buy it, as long as you're the first one to buy it, all you have to do is sign this contract that promises you'll buy a car for me. And we get there and then I'm like, Oh crap. Sorry, Jake. I just sold that Lamborghini, but I have lots of other great things yeah. for you to choose from. That's kind yeah. of what it's like to, to join the military wow. for a program like this. 
Okay. And so to move on from that particular phase, you ended up working just in the Navy itself. You were posted in the Middle East, you mentioned. Um, yeah. What were some of the, um, let's say, the skills that you were mainly taught during that process? So, um, you know, you mentioned already that uh, you were generally pretty good from an academic perspective and also from a physical and health perspective. So what role did you end up playing within the Navy and what kind of skills were necessary to achieve the job or complete the job that you were given? That's kind of a hard question to answer. Um, anybody that's been in the military could probably relate. But me specifically, like I did a lot of different things. Um, I was a search and rescue swimmer. I was uh, a member of like a vessel boarding search and seizure team. So that was like a lot of um, like close quarter combat, small firearms type training. Um, like I was, I did a lot of stuff with intelligence, a lot of stuff with like ships navigation, ship handling, uh, a lot of stuff with logistics, a lot of stuff with uh, like day-to-day -day operations, a lot of stuff with maintenance, a lot of stuff with, um, I, I was like a, like a fitness leader too, which I guess is, which again, probably a role I was like way super overqualified for, but uh, it, in that way, it's like the military does kind of this weird thing where they don't really care what you did before the military or what your extrinsic qualifications are when you're in the military. It's more so like, okay, but what has the Navy like blessed you to do? What has the Navy taught you? That's all that the Navy really cares about is like, what did we teach you to be? Um, we don't care what, like what, what you might know, what did we teach you? So that that's, yeah, that was a struggle. But uh, uh, yeah, and then like a lot of it is premise, ballistic though. missile defense stuff, like uh, asynchronous um, communication networks and those types of things, like coordinating that. So what I was going to say was, in, in a sense, the whole thing is a pyramid scheme in an organization, like any organization similar, but there's a line of command. And if that line of command, i.e. orders being filtered from one level to the next, ever breaks down, then the organization doesn't function. And so mm -hmm. if you were to say, well, hang on, I was a trainer outside of the army or the Navy or whatever you're doing, and this is how we used to do it. And then you change mm -hmm. the training program and then something ha happens as an externality to that, then that's on you. And that's not helpful to the guy above you or whatever it might be. So um, at least from my very, very small knowledge of what you're explaining, it, that makes sense to me as to why that's the 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 rhetoric internally if that makes sense yeah yeah there's very much a rigid adherence to um established process in the military and and probably for a very good reason um but i would argue you know let's like uh, looking at it more holistically um the department of defense is probably one of the largest most destructive bureaucracies in the world uh and probably also one of the most expensive uh and you know, the, a lot of the procedures and the customs and courtesies are rooted in, um, in the intentions of, you know, performing as, as like a performing the mission, right? Which is generally, I think we tend to think of that as good, like the tendencies that we have towards thinking uh, that, that internal nationalism that we kind of grow up with. They're like, oh, well, yes, well, I'm an American and then the American military are the good guys. And like, they do this so that we can win our fights. And it's like, and, okay, that makes sense. But uh, at a certain point, like, and, and, and I don't know if it's like this all over the world. I can really only speak to my experiences, but bureaucracy kind of exists as a means unto itself and not so much. It's like, we lost the plot a long time ago in the, in the U S military in terms of like, especially in the Navy, because that really hasn't been a war fighting organization for a pretty long time. So, uh, 
it's it's more so like about it's if anybody's ever read Mises's bureaucracy, it's it's more about a rigid adherence to the process than than the ends. Like it's about the means more than the ends, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, just because it, it exists as a means unto itself. And in and that, that also, sense, like, it can be very damaging. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, um, I've never served in the military, so I have no experience of to what it feels like to be inside an organization like that. Uh, but very, very interesting to hear your insights on it. So at some stage, you decided to put it to a conclusion. Um, you've already mentioned that you started day trading whilst you were on the job or, you know, say on the job, you had spare time and you started, you know, going down this rabbit hole. So um, why did you decide to leave the Navy and, and what was next? You moved back home, I guess, um, after your position or w- w- what happened then? But teach me a bit more about the kind of 2016, 17 time and what it was um, like to come across like crypto having, you know, cause I'm similar. I was, I was at university 2007 to 2011. People were buying drugs using Bitcoin. Um, it was a, it was a discussion, but your, your headspace, like I was there to get a business degree. I was then going to get like a job in the city of London. Like I wasn't looking at different monetary systems. In fact, I did a post on Twitter about this yesterday. I was taught how to make money. I wasn't taught Mm -hmm. what is money. And we Mm -hmm. definitely weren't taught to ask any questions about why government spending was wrong. And the global financial crisis happened whilst I was a business school student. Like the, the, the amount of moral hazard that was going on within the banking market was just like, beyond belief all these bad actors that then got scooped up and the the losses were socialized by the taxpayer and it's like hang on what just happened worst job market of a generation oh that's just life you know it was just it's so funny the conditioning in hindsight but um 2016 17 comes along a whole load of time's gone by and suddenly you're you're experiencing the itch and you've started reading this stuff and looking at financial markets teach me a bit more about that period yeah. Um, so I was in high school in 2008. So I uh, wasn't super involved in, in those types of things beyond just like taking an economics class. That was, that was a total waste of time. Like, I, I think the only thing I remember from my high school economics class was that we had to pick three stocks and just like buy them. And, and I think that class happened in like either late 2009 or early 2010 when the US <laughs> equities were in like a massive bull market. So basically, and I picked like Apple, Google, and like Facebook or something like that, or like GE or something like that. And I did really well. I was like, holy crap, I'm a phenomenal investor (laughs) because I just literally picked like three big tech stocks and did so well. Um, I'm I'm sure you probably had a lot of those types of false confirmations too in your time following the the financial crisis. Um, I think like 2017, that timeframe for me, like a lot of my a lot of it was born out of like knowing inflation was a thing, right? Kind of implicitly knowing it was a thing. Um, and, and knowing that like, well, to protect your wealth, you have to invest it. Like th- that's kind of just common sense, I think, in the 21st century, whether you have nuanced understandings of monetary policies and economic history or not. I think that just about everybody knows that inflation exists and that to protect your wealth, you invest it. Um, uh, we, we have definitely lost touch with like what that actually means in practice, but certainly, you know, you put your money in a 401k, you, you invest in your Charles Schwab and Robin hood account on the side or whatever, uh, to, you have to invest if you want to be wealthy. So like, I, I think it was born out of that. Um, just knowing, uh, knowing that like I, I needed to learn those skills, you know, because everybody kind of has to become an amateur investor to, hack it uh in this day and age unless they want to 
just get 1% on their savings account or whatever annually, it's probably not even that good. I don't know. Maybe it's gone up now that the, the Fed's raising rates again. But uh, um, there was like a large combination. It kind of all coalesced around like discovering quote unquote crypto, um, finding myself in like regularly finding myself in conversations with other people online. Like I did a weekly live, like a weekly crypto live stream for like a year or so. And then I started my own podcast and that was to focus more just on Bitcoin. I didn't want to talk about the other crypto stuff and then kind of building an audience on Twitter uh, as I kind of got my podcast rolling and like talking to more and more interesting people, meeting Ben, starting WTF happened in 1971. Um, those, those kind of things, like all just kind of ramped up together, you know, as I was reading all these different Austrian, Austrian economics texts, um, just the, the peer group that I kind of built for myself online that, that uh, was really like hashing ideas out at the time, uh, 2018, 2019 on Twitter was a really special place uh, for Bitcoiners. Uh, there was a lot of like really interesting conversations had. Um, and then to like answer your, your other question, I didn't actually leave the military until 2022. I would have left wow. sooner, but I would have left sooner, but they basically had me in a vice. Like I, I was basically in a position where I had no negotiating power at all, no leverage over my position. Um, wow. And I tried to, they, they had had me away from my, I was in the Navy for almost like seven and a half years and I was away from my wife for five or six years of that seven wow. and a half years. So I was at a point, uh, it was like 2018. I was at a point where I was going to come home from the Middle East and I was really ready to like start my family and actually be with my wife and have start having kids and stuff like that. Um, so I basically made the decision to reenlist because it would give me the negotiating power I needed to actually get home and be with my family rather than, um, going and getting screwed around for another year and a half. Well, long story short, that ended up being a huge mistake because they just took advantage of me again. Um, and then COVID happened and lots of dirty politics. And uh, I basically got, I basically got forced out. Um, I mean, I was getting out anyway, but like I got forced out under threats of like a lot of um, punitive action due to my refusal to take the COVID vaccine. Um, Okay. That's another really long story in and of itself, but there was a lot of coercion, a lot of very uh, irreputable behavior, a lot of threats, a lot of legal threats made towards me, a lot of threats to ruin my life. Uh, and, and I refused, like I didn't get it. And, and I, I applied for like a medical exemption because I had a lot of um, serious medical concerns that like extended from my the training that I did during the time that I was in the SEAL program. And uh, none of it, it was, I was all told that it was invalid and, and then I got out of the Navy and the Navy like lost my medical record and lost my DD-214, which is like the piece of paper that says that you served and got separated. And then they lost my last paycheck and all like all this stuff. And I don't know if any of that was retribution or what, but um, it did not, it was, it's not a happy ending. It's not, it was not a dirty fucking uh, tricks. That's what they Yeah, are. it was nasty. It was bad. But uh, I finally, I am out of that position now, but yeah, it took, it took a long time. I find it so fascinating when people tell me stories like that. And I agree, it's a whole nother podcast in itself, the COVID-19 vaccination program. But it, it's very clear to some people that it was a risk from the very start. And the whole thing was just a bit, a bit much. Like, where's this coming from? It's completely unnecessary, completely un, unproven. I mean, anyway, yeah, I mean, I could bang on about it as well. I had to work from home. I'm also in the same boat. To me, it made no sense. The risk was not worth the reward. And no. Thank you very much. But I was lucky in that I was working for someone that allowed me to work from home on a laptop. So <clears throat> I didn't come under too much duress for it. 
<clears throat> I have plenty it's of good. friends. I mean, I'm in Melbourne, Australia. This place was the lockdown capital of the world, basically. It was just disgusting what's happened here. Um, anyway, it's not about that. It's about sharing, just sharing with you a moment. Basically, it's been tough, that process. And um, mm-hmm. uh, no, good on you for, um, for standing up for what you believe in, because it's an incredibly important part of, again, being human. Ask questions. What's right? What's wrong? This doesn't make any sense. Red light. No thanks. Do you know what I mean? It's important. It's pushback because otherwise, yeah, like, yeah. we're going to end up in this crazy situation where you know we just get told what to do the whole time, and we're like, okay, fine. That doesn't make any sense. Like, what if it's the wrong thing for me, or the wrong thing for my family, or you know? And now all these adverse event stories that are coming out that you just can't deny it, right? There's hundreds of footballers falling down in the middle of the pitch. Like, mm-hmm. hello, this doesn't happen. Like, <laughs> what's it from? Right. Um, so yeah, that's, a, that's yeah. an extraordinary situation to have found yourself in because it was, it was also that funny thing where, you know, your military is your defense mechanism against foreign power and you're forcing them to take a medicine that's unproven that in theory might actually weaken your own military. Why? Like, why would that policy be pushed through? And I, I don't know the answer. You might have a bit more insight, but it always struck me as something that was quite extraordinary. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it kind of traces back to like what I was talking about earlier, like that rigid, that rigid adherence to process, um, where mm. there's just no, there is no space allowed for any type of two-way conversation or any type of outside expertise, um, beyond just what is dictated from the top. Um, and anything that, that attempts to deviate from that is squashed. Um, certainly that has its place, like I said, but, uh, Mm. yeah, I, I think, I think, uh, that, that there's very, uh, there's very much, um, a a top down institutional problem in in most of the West today. And I think that it stems from an over expansive bureaucracy that's funded by, uh, the state's ability to infinitely expand its access to money and credit. And I, I don't think it's too much more than that. Certainly there are plenty of nefarious people with nefarious motives, uh, but that doesn't, I don't believe in one giant grand conspiracy, you know, with one puppet master. Uh, I believe it's, it's probably a bit more splinter celled than that. You know, it, it tends yeah. to be um, individual bad people looking out for their individually bad interests. And uh, those interests a lot of times align themselves towards, you know, certain paths rather than common goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, there are not enough people that are willing to uh, F.A. Hayek has a great quote where he says that the independence of mind and the strength of character is rarely found among those who are not confident that, that they can make their way by their own interests. Uh, and that quote's always really stuck with me. That's in the, uh, the road to serfdom. That quote's always really stuck with me because I think that there are a lot of people in this day and age that because of the stress that's been placed on them by the state's ability to infinitely expand money and credit that, are not confident that they can make their way by their own efforts. And they end up in positions where they're like career military or career politicians or whatever. And Mm. they're like, I don't know why they keep paying me so much to do this, but I'm just going to keep this gig going and pretend like I always know what I'm talking about. And like, I'm always doing the right thing. And they just like go along to get along and they don't know anything else. And they could imagine anything else. All they know is that if they just keep going along to get along, they'll be rewarded for it um, quite handsomely in a lot of cases. So, yeah. Um. And I'd like to draw back to um, what the fuck happened in 1971. So you mentioned someone called Ben. I wasn't sure who that was. So talk to me about Ben. Talk to me about that website. Um, 
it's certainly something that you I wouldn't throw it at a complete noob but um it's also something that once you start looking at this situation like hang on what the hell has been going on and your website just lays it out brilliantly in that you know ever since 1971 and the decisions that president nixon made the average man on the street's purchasing power has been absolutely destroyed and the markets have gone crazy essentially and and, and inequality's got worse and there's so many other brilliant kind of metrics on there that really help to drive home the um the negative externalities of the current modern monetary theories that we're using to run our finance systems essentially and the money that we use um and it's it's a fascinating subject so yeah just talk to me a bit more about like you know initially it was crypto then you realized it was bitcoin why did you realize that bitcoin was what you wanted to focus on entirely and then what was the, the genesis for the website so as for the why bitcoin it's because bitcoin solves a lot of the very real problems that i was uncovering um and it took me a while to realize that crypto doesn't necessarily solve those problems bitcoin does it orders of magnitude better than any other quote unquote crypto project might claim to um it i think coming from penny stocks uh, where everyone that trades penny stocks knows that everything in penny stocks is a scam and the people that don't are the ones you call a fish and basically like everyone everyone that's good at trading penny stocks knows that everything is fake every pr is not real every media announcement and event is not real every company is either a shell company or a scam um every ceo is a lying cheating bastard right because none of these people like if they were running real companies that did real things that made real money they wouldn't be listed on an otc exchange they would try be working to get listed on a real exchange because like you, you don't list your company on a penny stock exchange if, if it's not, if it's real, like there's, I'm sure there's probably some exceptions, right? Like, you know, don't, don't make me call out every single exception to every rule, but uh, yeah, sure. There's exceptions. There's always exceptions, but that kind of like, kind of helped me see that a lot of crypto is like, well, okay, probably I, I was willing to say, okay, maybe like 99% of crypto is a dumb scam. And then I was like, well, wait, I have one problem. And this technology solves a problem arguably better than anything else to many orders of magnitude. I'm just going to focus on that um, because that gives me, like I've always been very much a, an all-in kind of person. Um, I, I tend to put all my eggs in one basket when I do things. Mm. And that's just the way I am. I, I go full speed on one thing. Mm. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe part of that is dogmatic in a way, like when it comes to Bitcoin. But like I... I I couldn't see it any other way. If I'm being intellectually honest with myself, it's the only thing worth focusing on because one of the, the biggest problem in the world right now is the money uh, and the nation states and the central bank's ability to expand money and credit without consequence. Those That's the biggest problem in the world, in my opinion. So Bitcoin is the biggest solution to the biggest problem. Um, there you go. That's the answer. So in terms of like, it's interesting that you say you would not expose a newbie to WTF happened in 1971 because that's actually kind of what it's for. That's kind of what it's tailored to. Um, I spoke about this at, at the Bitcoin conference in 2021, where like the way I phrased it was that uh, that website is not designed to the chagrin of, of many an internet goer. The, the website is not designed to give anybody any answers. The website is designed to get people to ask the right question, which yeah. is what the fuck happened in 1971. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people get really upset that there isn't uh, 
a very thorough and extensive blog post at the bottom or in the middle or at the beginning, <laughs> walking you through everything and, and, you know, using some sort of um, statistical analysis to throw out outliers and calculate with a certain probability of success um, and, and confidence intervals at to what point uh, we can determine that all of this was caused specifically by the gold standard. And like, this is my, my confidence number here. Uh, like people want that. They want to be spoon fed like an answer. And I'm, okay. I'm kind of want to turn that on its head and say like, no, you, you don't need the answer. You need to ask a better question. The question is like, I, I, I love uh, that by the way. That's awesome. That really helps yeah. bring context to why it is the way it is. The, the biggest um, it does make back, me ask questions. I was like, wow, uh -huh. what's this website telling me? I don't, do you, and, and it's, that's exactly what happened in some ways. I must go back to it and have another look. Um, the biggest pushback that people give on that site is that, oh, correlation doesn't imply causation. But my, I would argue correlation should be where you start looking for causation, right? It's like, it's interesting that, that people, and people also say that it's cherry picked. And it's like, well, of course it's cherry picked. Right. It's like, that's the point. The point is that I've cherry picked data that all goes crazy in 1971. That's intentional. That's by design. Right. It wasn't like we just picked 50 random charts and they just so happened to all look that way. We have hand selected charts to get people to ask a certain question. And the question is, what the why did Nixon end the convertibility yeah. of gold? and dollars in 1971 and that's a very important question uh and whether or not like you come away from that question with the same answer that i do is less important to me than that you just ask it in the first place because i can't force you what to think right and i don't want to force you what to think um but I, I would like to be able to occasionally steer conversations as to what people think about right because that's what the smartest people in the world do they steer conversations as to what people think about uh, i can't control what you think but i can maybe make you think about something in a way you hadn't before. Uh, so that's really where the power of that website is. And, and Ben was um, really bit like when Ben and I met, we didn't know each other at all. Well, like, like most people that meet. Right. And uh, he just reached out to me because he had been listening to my podcast and uh, we started talking. He came on my podcast a couple of times and then through many, many, many late night nerdy conversations about the history of monetary economics, we ended up just putting all of these charts in one place and kind of had this idea like let's just make it a meme uh instead of just you know another another economics blog or whatever yeah it's a great shout because it's then it's about like well i worked in the startup space for a few years and you know route to market was always a really interesting discussion you've got an idea you've got an initial product how do you find more people that you know will like the product and there's lots of different routes to market that you can choose um, there's lots of different business models that go with that. The idea of like memes have become so successful. I mean, my favorite at the moment is everything divided by 21 million of Knut Svanholm. And it's just so simple. And it's like, how, what do you mean everything divided by 21 million? And again, it gets you to ask questions. But he came on the pod. He was my first uh, episode. And he actually explained that he wrote that phrase in an article when he was almost falling asleep and he wrote the article and he sent it off to Bitcoin Citadel, didn't even think twice about rereading it. And it wasn't until a few months later when he was going back through it, having it being posted and had some good feedback. He's like, oh, this is all right, Knut. Well done. He suddenly comes across that phrase that he's written and he couldn't even remember it. 
and it's again it's a similar way of like his meme that that's become a meme right people are using mm-hmm. that as a way of explaining so much more than the individual phrase and it's the same with what the fuck happened in 1971 um and it's an excellent way of engaging with people in and specifically like with short-term social media blog posts like how do you reach the most people um Yes, a brilliant work. Well done. It's definitely got into like, you know, common conversation and people talk about it like all the time. Um, yeah, over 2 million lifetime views. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and so one thing I'd love to understand a bit more of is, you know, you say that central banking um, in conjunction with government has the ability to um, basically increase credit forever. That you mm-hmm. perceive as the biggest problem in the world right now. Why do you think that's the biggest problem in the world? Oh boy, that's a big one. So it starts with, um, there's two ways that you can look at that question. Um, You can look at it ethically or you can look at it economically, like from a pragmatic standpoint. Um, my, My favorite way to, I'm most known for like, my takes on economics, but my favorite way to approach that problem is like the Frederick Bastiat way, like to look at it like the way he did in, in the law, where he basically says, you know, that like when plunder becomes a way for a group of men in society, they make for themselves like a legal way to, to plunder. Um, I mean, that, that's really what it comes down to is, is that uh, societies that you can't have central planning. You can't have a middle ground between central planning and free market economics. You either have central planning or you have free market economics and you get free market economics by having uh, strong respect for property rights. Um, and you can't have strong respect for property rights. If the medium of exchange and unit of account that undercurrents all of economic activity and human action within a society is constantly being debased for the purposes of uh, fiscal and monetary policies of large state entities. You simply can't. It cannot exist, right? Because the problem that we talked about earlier where now I have to become an amateur investor because I can't save money in the bank because everyone knows inflation is a thing and my purchasing power slowly decreases, that is in and of itself in a covert form of ten- taxation. Um, and, and it's done in a way that's, that's sneaky, right? And it's not upfront with the, uh, with the, with the counterparty, like what, what terms they're agreeing to when, they, when they're holding those dollars. Like you don't think, oh, hey, wow, the government might dilute my purchasing power here in order to be able to, um, you know, deficit spend to, to keep all of that one politician's campaign promises next year. Like that doesn't go through the layman's mind. Uh, it, it simply can't. Like that's too complex it's too gray. Uh, it, it's too abstract. They, they cannot think to that level. The, the, the understanding that they have when they enter into that social contract of money within their society is that that is their wealth, right? And that they have earned it rightfully through work that they've performed. And that wealth is entitling them to like a certain degree of, of capital allocation within the greater confines of an economic system. So when I look at that, like, Frederick Bastiat's The Law is, is by far the best thing, that in the Bible is by far the best things that I've come across when it comes to addressing this problem from an, econ, uh, from an ethical standpoint. From an economic standpoint, it's damaging simply because uh, capital in a free market system moves 
from the unproductive to the more productive. Uh, and, and if you're solving a problem and you're doing it profitably, it means that you're doing it in a way that's benefiting society, assuming that you're not like cheating people and lying to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if he, all of human progress is marked by entrepreneurs profitably solving problems, right? And, and if um, you mess up, if you mess with that feedback loop, of capital moving from the unproductive to the productive, which is what happens when you infinitely expand money and credit. Um, you disrupt that process that actually makes society better over time. And if you do it for long enough, and if you do it to a certain magnitude, um, you're probably going to start reversing that progress or impeding that progress in the kinds of ways that we're seeing now. Wonderful answer. Thank you very much. And all of the points you raise in some ways, and I love this too. So, uh, the phrase proof of work as part of the Bitcoin design is something so much more powerful than what I initially realized. And to understand what it means requires work. And the explanation you've just given requires work. Like you've sat down, you've gone, hang on, what the fuck happened in 1971? And looked at you know, countless hours of research, reading YouTube's whatever you did speaking to people to come to the conclusions you are are at and it's brilliant and then retelling these stories is how other people learn so thank you so much for sharing all that it's um it's so true I mean to take another interesting fr- uh, like view or framework uh, ESG is a a popularized investment lens that's being um, encouraged from the top of government all over the world environment social governance when you look at Bitcoin through those three lenses, it's the best ESG investment you could ever make. And I, I like that you mentioned there's like an ethical side to, you know, the issues with central banking, because um, it's not just an economic impact. It's also just the whole thing's so unfair. You know, the Cantillon effect is just such an interesting process. Like, well, hang on, they make the money at a drop of a hat. So if I sit next to them, can I get some of that money? Oh, yeah. Okay, great. I'm going to go over there. And there's a bunch of people who don't even realize that there's someone making money for themselves that they can hand out to their best buddies. It's just like, well, hang on, what is this? This this is real. And then, I mean, there's an amazing, uh, I think it was a Washington Post article that I saw at one point where Biden stands up and says, stimulus is being announced and it's for ending poverty. And you just think, hang on, are you joking? You've got to be joking, right? Like we all know that inflation is most savage at the lower economic end of the spectrum for society. It's quite obvious, right? They don't have the same asset base. They have more cash. There's just so many things that are going on out there basically where it seems very obvious when you start looking at it that there are you know, countless negative externalities to this huge problem you mentioned. Um, oh, it's so interesting. And so, okay, 2022, you've left the military you've got this passion for Bitcoin, you've built a bit of a following online, you've created a brilliant website. Um, I noticed on your Twitter, you're building something called Arctica. Um, teach me a bit about that project. And equally, if there's any other projects you want to um, mention as we got another 10 minutes or so of our conversation, um, I'd love to hear about anything else you're building in the Bitcoin space. Sure. Um, so I'm still trying to figure out how to explain Arctica quickly and qu- uh, easily. Um, yeah, elevator pitch, go. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an open source software project, um, and it's designed to target users. It's so it's designed to deliver optimized Bitcoin self custody in a way that does not cut corners uh, for security or privacy. Um, 
And in addition to that, I also want it to provide, uh, I want it to solve the problem of inheritance because I have kids um, and most of my, I get paid in Bitcoin, right? And I, uh, I use Bitcoin to, to pay my bills. So Bitcoin is very important to my life. So if something were to happen to me, I would need for my family to be able to inherit um, my wealth. And that's not an easy problem to solve in Bitcoin uh, in a way where you're still being secure and private. So Arctica is basically going to be an open source software approach to solving that problem um, in a way that that doesn't rely on any type of closed third-party trust, uh, closed third-party applications, closed third-party hardware, um, with the exception of like very generic hardware, like a laptop that you install an operating system on yourself. Um, I want it to be fairly low cost, um, but also I want it to be realistic in terms of like, I'm targeting high net worth types of types of stores. So we're talking about like best of the best storage protocol, do it all open source, give it away for free type of project. So that's, uh, that's Arctica. And so why is inheritance a problem in the Bitcoin space? Because Bitcoin is a bearer instrument and the bearer, the, the, it's, it's a bearer instrument in the sense that it is a inform, it's informational. So if you don't know a person's private key, no amount of arbitration will get you the Bitcoin. Um, unlike just about every other bearer instrument in the world where um, there can be some sort of arbitration process in a, in a court that's extrinsic to the property itself, um, Bitcoin's arbitration process can only happen on the Bitcoin blockchain. And unless you hold the private key that corresponds to the particular Bitcoin, you know, on the, the ledger, um, you, it doesn't matter how many courts you go to. It doesn't matter how many judges you appear before. It doesn't matter how many lawyers you have. Uh, you'll never be able to finalize an arbitration of that property without that private key. So solving for inheritance means that like, if you want to optimize for security and you want to have like, say a, a five of seven multi-sig, like the way Arctica is going to work is it's going to have a high security environment, which is a five of seven area. And then it will have like a medium security area, which will be a two of seven multi-sig. Um, wouldn't it be great if you could give your heir one of those keys to hold on to for safekeeping? And if you ever die in four years or whatever, that one key will allow them to spend the Bitcoin um, because it decays down to look from like a five of seven down to one of seven, assuming that you're not around to postpone that decay or something to that, to that effect. So that's like almost a time-locked Bitcoin vault. So yeah, in a sense. Yeah, that's going to be part of it. It's going to be time-locked and time-decayed as well. Yeah, because I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely passionate about this as well. You know, the the passing of wealth from one generation to the next is, you know, in some jurisdictions heavily taxed, which is just mind blowing. But um, the, the fact is, is your forefathers worked their nuts off to get what they have. And therefore making sure it is passed through to the next generation is of critical importance to said person that worked their nuts off, but also for the chances of the, the previous, you know, of the, of the next, um, you know, of your kids and their kids. And Bitcoin is going to completely revolutionize the wealth management business. They just haven't realized it yet. Like you don't need a portfolio of stocks. You don't need a, a load of government bonds in order to have a balanced portfolio. You now just have to own Bitcoin and make sure you can access it. That's it. Mm -hmm. um, especially if you can hold it for like, you know, 10 years or whatever. 
um, I'm, it's the best investment any of us could ever make, but it's not even really an investment because it's actually just money. Um, and that whole, you know, saving and investing is not the same. And by owning Bitcoin, you're actually just saving using a digital currency that never existed before. Hence, it has such incredible purchasing power, increased potential over the next, you know, however many years. We don't know. Um, and inheritance is a cool part of that. Okay, interesting. Because I mean, personally, I'm using a, a multi-sig vault with Unchained and I'm working actually, interestingly, with a financial advisor in Australia who is using a more traditional financial advisory business model where they charge a fee of um, 1% on Bitcoin under management and they hold a key. And you basically have a, you have a human that you have to trust. So why would Arctica be better than that? Um, in terms of the use case. So you're basically only using tech to help the inheritance actually happen rather than employing a third party. That's what you're explaining. Yeah, there's only one answer that matters and it's because open source software that's done right is government hard. Whereas yeah. any type of custodial third party, um, regardless of how trustworthy they are, is prone to co-option by a state actor. Some stage. Whether that be forcefully, <laughs> overtly, or covertly. Um, like what happened in 1971 um, or like, and arguably that goes back, you know, hundreds of years in, in U S monetary history. Um, it's, it's, it's simply more resilient than, than a, a trusted third party institution. Yeah. Brilliant. And obviously then the, the transportability of it, you go anywhere in the world, you can still get your money. Um, you have to die tomorrow because this is a fear, right? You know, you could get hit by a bus, mm -hmm. you could have a heart attack, you could have, you know, anything could happen. And if you had a digital wallet that no one had access to, that's just dumb, right? That's just really very, very poor risk planning on one's behalf when it comes to making sure the next generation get what they deserve. Um, cool. Well, I'm, I look forward to watching that and seeing how it progresses over time. Um, what a great conversation. I've loved this so much. Thank you for sharing all of this. Is there any kind of final comments you'd like to make before we wrap up? Uh, no, I don't think so, man. I appreciate you having me on. Um, sorry, we don't have more time. I would love to keep talking. Um, <laughs> no, well, there's always, there's always more questions, right? It's, um, it's such a fascinating subject. Well, one thing that did just strike me, I, I didn't ask about. So you get paid in Bitcoin and you have to pay your bills in Bitcoin. Um, just briefly talk us through, uh, how that process functions. Cause a lot of people will be like, what can you actually even do that? And, yeah, just intrigued as to how you get that to work for yourself. Yeah, uh, I'm actually one of the founders of the hashtag get on zero lunatic. I'm, I'm one of those lunatics. Yeah, so um, uh, for me, yeah, it's complicated. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's one of those ethical decisions. Uh, but also, if you do the math, it's also an economic decision because on a, on a historical basis, um, you're more likely to outperform inflation by holding Bitcoin than not. So you're, you're on a, like a long-term basis, like you're, you're better off holding Bitcoin hundred percent and $0, even though sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Mm -hmm. um, and the number one way to circumvent that is to have savings. So like, I'm not the type, I'm not going to recommend that somebody start living on Bitcoin if they have no savings. Um, or maybe they should, because if they did and, and Bitcoin pumps 50%, 
after the day they get paid, well, now you have savings. Congratulations. And if you have no savings, you're in a really bad economic position. So you need to fix that. So I don't know. I, what, what, what's going to hurt you more, having no savings at all or taking a 50% haircut on your paycheck? I don't know. I can't make that decision for you. But I, I live on Bitcoin. I don't hold dollars. I only use dollars like I would use pesos if I were traveling to Mexico for the day. Um, you know, I, I interact with, I call them analog natives. I interact with analog natives who demand payment in fiat currencies and I pay them in kind, um, but I don't hold dollars because I don't want to lend liquidity, liquidity and legitimacy to the fiat Ponzi. So for me, it's like I use a lot of credit, like I use like a lot of credit cards that I pay off like at the last minute with Bitcoin as needed, or I, I tend to prefer to enter like exchange Bitcoin peer to peer. So like I would love to pay you in Bitcoin if you were a contractor I was working with or someone paying me for something. Um, I would love to do that in Bitcoin directly. If, if you're the farmer down the street and I want to buy half a cow, hey, do you, have you heard about Bitcoin? That, that tends to be what, where it goes a lot of the time. And uh, other than that, it's really just kind of getting creative and, and searching for that nascent technological tip of the spear that's willing to cater to my fringe demands, which is like, hey, give me a debit card that... Um, like sells Bitcoin to instantly fund my purchases or whatever. So that's what I'm looking towards. Well, and things like that will get built. Um, there's, there's so much opportunity for innovation in the Bitcoin space. It's mind blowing. Like every conversation I have, I think of something new that doesn't yet exist. And in some cases it's like, okay, in traditional markets, it's exists. It's existed for a long time and been successful and therefore it could be reapplied to Bitcoin. But actually often those, previous business models aren't necessary in a Bitcoin world. So you have to be careful not to kind of just copy paste the previous paradigm onto what's a new system entirely and therefore isn't necessary. Um, but yes, making it easier to interact in Bitcoin, get paid in Bitcoin, get, you know, as painful as it is, we all live, we all live, we often live in environments where we have to do tax self-assessments to governments, et cetera, and make sure that like, you know, we're not, sneaking through things that we're going to get called up for in the future. Do you know what I mean? You know, you know there are certain kind of mm -hmm. accounting processes that have to be adhered to. Um, so making that easy for people is also like a big, uh, a big barrier to entry that I think could be cool. Um, but yeah, no, kicking off with a, an open source inheritance focused uh, storage solution, epic. Because actually, I mean, to me anyway, the, the fact that you are the sole owner of the keys for your Bitcoin wallet and therefore you are the only person that is any kind of counterparty risk in a sense to the storage of your wealth or to access to your wealth for future generations. The, the traditional investment paradigm hasn't understood counterparty risk in the same way that Bitcoin lens allows. So like, Absolutely. okay, you, you, you hire a financial advisor, they take your money into their own bank account with some large banking corporation they'll then distribute those funds to either you know funds that are then running funds of funds or wherever the money might go it's in it's in the old system in short and if there's a massive crash which might well happen or there's a hyperinflation event and just there's a complete freeze in credit markets who knows that money you won't get it back there'll be all sorts of small print that says oh we need six months or you're getting 50p on the dollar or whatever it might be whereas owning your own keys completely that just disappears and right well and beyond that i don't know how it works in australia but in the united states every single bank account is backstopped by the fdic which guarantees up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars for each individual uh account um i would imagine australia has a similar program um 
you know, yeah, they're broke do. too. FDIC is broke too. So yeah. it's, it all comes down to how much money is the government willing to print to extend its guarantees, you know, in the event of a, of a true black swan. Mm. Yeah. Well, we'll have to see it play out. Well, Hank, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your journey today. I've really enjoyed it. And um, I look forward to, to chatting some more in the future. Thank you very much. Last question. Thanks, Jake. Where can people reach you if they want to get in touch? At Heavily Armed C on Twitter. That's the letter C. Actually, and I'll make it one more question. What was the inspiration for the name? Uh, um, the, secret to monkey, or the, the Secret to Monkey Island, I think. Uh, it's a LucasArts adventure game from like 1980. Um, it's very obscure. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, great. Everyone has different, uh, different sources of inspiration. I love it. All right. Thanks so much for your time. Take care. Thanks, Jake. Bye. Friends, you made it all the way to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening to Bitcoin with Jake. Early support for the show has been so encouraging, so I couldn't be more appreciative of people sharing their most important resource, their time. Remember, if you like what you heard, please share the episode far and wide. And if you want to get in touch, please reach out as I would love to hear from you. The best place is Twitter. My handle is at Jake E.S. Woodhouse or the podcast handle is at Bitcoin with Jake. Enjoy the rest of your day. All the best, Jake.